Hello, Talent Talks listeners. Uh, this is a special episode of the podcast that accompanies a story in the fall-winter issue of Lyft Magazine. The story is about three of the many alumni who were involved in Operation Allies Refuge, which evacuated 120,000 Americans, Afghans, and other international allies out of Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul, Afghanistan, as that country was rapidly returning to Taliban control in August of 2021. What you'll hear in this episode is basically an edited version of the interviews uh, that I had with Doug Mayo, Adam Cooper, and Matt Steele. These bits uh, couldn't make it into the magazine due to the length, but it's pretty powerful stuff. I also conducted these interviews with a print story in mind, so it doesn't follow our usual podcast format. What you'll hear is an edited version of those interviews for the story called Providing Refuge which you'll find on page 35 of the print magazine or on our website at lift.erau.edu. First up is Doug Mayo, an F-16 pilot for the U.S. Air Force. He commissioned out of Air Force ROTC Detachment 157 in 2011 with his bachelor's degree in aeronautics from Embry-Riddle. When did you know you were going to Kabul for this operation? <laughs> yeah, so I got confirmation on Thursday, August 12th at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. And on Thursday, August 12th at 1800, so eight hours later, I was on the first leg of my trip into Kabul. Why did you choose to volunteer for this? This one's actually, uh, it's fairly personal. In mm-hmm. 2015, I went as a fighter pilot and my job was to defend our folks on the ground, which involved, you know, as you might imagine, taking lives. So that's, that was, that was my job in 2015. And so when I started working in the planning for this and I recognized the magnitude of lives that we might be able to save, it almost felt like a like a yen to the yang or or an ability to to balance the scales of justice for you know having having to do what I had to do in 2015. It was it was my opportunity to to save souls. That's that's why I volunteered uh, because I felt very passionately about you know being being able to save people. And and I I mean I believe that in 2015 I was saving people as well. So that you know that's been the job the whole time. That's that's the that's why I volunteered was because it was a, it was my chance to to save people in a very meaningful way. Yeah. So tell me what job you ended up doing as part of this mission. Yeah. So I was the current ops, current operations air officer for the Joint Task Force Contingency Response. So that's that's a mouthful but to basically say I, I helped coordinate all things air related for the Joint Task Force, which was charged with executing the non-combatant evacuation operations. Can you walk me through sort of a, is there a typical day for that that mission? Typically, I would show up to work at about 1900 Kabul time, and I would usually get done at about 10 a.m., 11 a.m. Kabul time. My primary focus was really during the night periods of darkness. So what I would do was help coordinate across a, a multitude of entities to try to maximize our use of air. So we had kind of different groups of like, you know, there was the, the outer ring, if you will, the the gates where folks were being brought into the HKIA, the Harman Karzai International Airport. So, you know, understanding the flow rate of passengers or people as they came in through those gates and then got processed into our evacuation control center, understanding how many we had at any time and how many airplanes we had coming in and then balancing that with other like Department of State specific groups that they were trying to help make sure we got out as well as balancing airflow for just stuff coming in and stuff going out uh, and people going out really. And so making sure that we had the flow rate as as best as we could to make sure that we were maximizing every single airplane that we had available. Okay. Did it, 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 did it feel like a stressful and dangerous situation where you were? Were you primarily inside the terminal? Were you out on the tarmac? Where where were you and how did it feel? Yeah, so my like my primary location was on the uh, Joint Operations Center floor. So uh, we call that a JOC, a J-O-C. So the Joint Operations Center floor, or like, you know, some people would might call that a TOC as well, Tactical Operations Center. That was like my, my primary location. And I think for OPSEC reasons, I can't go into specifics of, of where it was exactly, but it was it was in a building that was right right near the, the edge of the one of the edges of the airport. So that was like where my 
primary focus was, but I bounced around, you know, as, as you might kind of imagine, because we had fairly limited connectivity. So I, I bounced around a lot between that location, the location of the uh, contingency response element or contingency response group, which had Adam Cooper in it. And so I would, you know, walk over to where they were located, which was where the cargo yard kind of met the passenger ramp. And then I would also walk over into the passenger terminal, which was what we were using. Now, it's not the passenger terminal. Like if you look at a map, it's not the south end where the actual like international airlines would go. It was the north end of the airfield where uh, where we were doing all of our operations out of. So I would uh, kind of bounce around a bunch between all of those different locations to include sometimes going out and actually quite frequently going out onto the ramp and just climbing up in the cockpit and then doing that that pilot thing, you know, like talking to the air crew about what was going on and kind of helping to to move in the direction that we needed things to move. <clears throat> like I'll, I'll give you a, for instance, there was a, a certain air carrier who had a, the, the ability to, to fly in there and they were having some trouble with getting approvals for landing at another location. So I spent some time up in their cockpit, just helping them work through getting, getting the right approvals to, to land where they were planning on going. So sometimes like that, Sometimes I'll give you a specific example. We had um, one aeromedical evacuation bird that was going to Germany. And at the time we were really, you know, I mean, the whole time we were trying to maximize every single flight. Well, this particular flight was an aeromedical evacuation configured bird and they, the air crew landed and said that they could take 100 and maybe 20, maybe 130, but at most 140. And at the time we had already built up a, a manifest for 180. So I basically just went up into the cockpit and just you know, had that discussion with the aircraft commander, the loadmaster, the the co-pilot, and just tried to like come up with how do we get to 180 because that's the number we were ready to put on a plane right then. And any any delays were really, you know, we, we couldn't afford delays of any kind because we were trying to maximize every single parking spot and every single airplane. So we were talking through it and basically they what they needed was more gas because they were going all the way to Germany. And so what we, what we figured out was there was some gas available there at the airfield. So I worked with the contingency response group there, Adam Cooper and, and his team, to figure out like, hey, could we get some gas to these guys in a timely manner so that we could put 180 packs on this airplane and, and therefore maximize the use of it? So that And that's basically that kind of stuff. So just working through these like tactical problems and then... I would get back into the the jock, the Joint Operations Center, and try to try to bridge that gap between the operational questions and operational work, trying to figure out how, how many to how many airplanes we needed to flow, which you know which ramp we were going to load them on, all that stuff. So kind of that connective tissue between those. It's kind of a long long answer, but does that kind of give you an idea? Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. So you said that was Germany, you know, bird coming out of going to Germany. Yeah. What did do you have a translator? Like, do you know a lot of languages? How do you communicate? Oh, those were, sorry, those were U.S. Air Force. It was a U.S. Air Force okay. with U.S. Air Force pilots. Okay. They were just bound gotcha. for a Ramstein. So they, they had very gotcha. specific gas requirement. You know, it was a conversation of, can we get you air refueling? Because, I, you know, I, I was had connective mm -hmm. tissue to the, the KOC there in Al-Udeed and, and, and the one back at Shaw. And so it was like, hey, is it, a, is it a, you know, can we do air refueling? Can we do ground refueling? You know, just the, that's just one specific example, though. Uh, lots of similar type stuff. Right, right. Lots of small logistical crises throughout through, throughout all this. Yeah. No, it's, it's funny because the typical, like, airfield operations things that you would expect to occur at a, at a normal airfield had kind of gone mostly out the window. They were running the tower from like, a, it was like four or five Marines sitting on the taxi, on the edge of the taxiway with like a little portable handheld radio. And that was the tower. Now, eventually we bolstered that up to a, a nice little pop-up tent and a little bit bigger of a radio with bigger batteries. But for the most part, that was pretty much the tower the entire time was, you know, just some Marines and eventually some airmen on the on the in the little infield right between the runway and the taxiway and that's I mean, that's how they ran the operation. So when you think about stuff like FOD or runway inspections, you know, that, that kind of stuff, none of that was happening because, because we couldn't, you know. And even at times, there were, because there were so many countries all just rapidly trying to get their people out, there were times where buses from other countries and or sometimes even our own from the U.S. would, would just blitz across the runway with, without talking to anybody because, you know, there wasn't really 
any way to communicate. So they would just quickly cross the runway. So foreign object, runway inspection, that kind of stuff. It was it was the wild, wild west. Did you, did it feel dangerous for you? Did you have a sense of what was going on outside yeah, of the airport? So, and again, without, without going too specific, um, mm-hmm. so there was a, a continual threat stream. There was a pretty much constantly uh, a known threat. And I say unknown threat, but like there were constant threats. There was there was one specific instance where we believed that there was going to be a massive explosive device. And, and that, that particular uh, time was one of the most probably terrifying in my career thus far, including flying an F-16. <laughs> More terrifying than that. And, and you know, we were tracking, tracking one that was getting pretty close to, to our location. And there was, you know, effectively nothing you could really do at that point. So, yeah, I would say, you know, there was that. Then there was the uh, the ground attack that occurred where, where we lost 13 service members and many, many more injured, including a significant number of Afghan nationals. So uh, there were, you know, constant threat streams before and after that, that something similar would, would happen. How do you keep calm during something like this? I think it's just part of, you know, all the training that we've been through, you know, all along the way, everything from ROTC there at Embry-Riddle through, you know, years of, of training and combat. You, you know, you just learn how to how to kind of focus on the mission at hand, do the part that you're supposed to do and and just, you know, trust that everybody's going to do what we're supposed to do. And, and then you just, you know, you just focus on that. And, and that's I mean, the same thing kind of happens even after. So, you know. Right after that ground attack happened, the 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 goal was you know continue focusing on your portion of the mission, and that's how you as long as everybody does that, you know the folks who are closest to it focus on you know resolving that, and then you know the the different layers kind of do their own bits and parts. Then you know that's that's how you keep moving is by focusing on your part of the mission. When did it sink in the size or the importance of what you were doing? So so the the first night we arrived into just absolute chaos and. So the the first 36, maybe 40-ish hours was just nonstop. It was like land and just go and, and continue to try to, to figure out what we're doing and, and help move things along because things had gotten pretty out of hand with the... Um, you know, the, the flood of people that got onto the airfield. And it was, you know, I, I, re- I landed shortly after they had cleared that runway. So just kind of walking into the chaos, it took a little while for it to, to settle in. But I think that what really did it for me was my first trip over to the PAX terminal, the passenger terminal, being, being a father of two, when I walked in and I just saw the immense number of families and the just the human condition, you know, just the their desperation to to get to somewhere safe and just knowing that we we were getting them to somewhere safe, you know, that we were that's what we were doing. That was that's that was our job was to to get them to safety and just seeing these families with these young kids, you know, similar in age to my own, that that's when it really kind of I think sunk in and and the importance of the mission really truly hit was uh, that first trip inside the passenger terminal and the first time, you know, seeing all these families, that's that's when it really sunk in. Yeah. Yeah. That's really hard. The conditions on the ground and at the airport, it was pretty tough, you know, just the the sheer number and the desperation of these people trying trying to evacuate to safety, you know, and that was, you know, I, I don't think anybody's necessarily intentionally not saying it or showing it. I think just maybe it's not as obvious how dire the situation clearly was for them because I mean, yeah. most of these people left with nothing but the clothes on their back. And that after the successful improvised explosive device, we had to, we had to enforce a policy, unfortunately of, of absolutely no bags because the potential for, you know, an explosive to go off in an airplane had gotten so hot. We had, we just had to say like, I'm, I'm sorry, but no bags, the rate at which it would take to, to be able to thoroughly search and appropriately search every bag to make sure that there were, you know, there were no explosives. We got to the point where it was unfortunately just not, not feasible or viable. So, so these people, you know, had no choice but to leave with nothing but the clothes on their back. When, when you woke up on your final day, how did you think that was going to go? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was very, I think bittersweet is the right term. Just to be able to leave the danger myself was great. 
but knowing that there were still a lot of people that were wanting to be able to leave that we just could not could not help at that point you know that was pretty tough like you know and and I wasn't the uh, I wasn't on the last bird out you know and so I think every military member has it in their their servant heart to be the last one out and so it's tough to accept not being on the last bird there were there were two other guys who who had to stay for a later bird and so just kind of knowing that I was on my way to safety was great but just leaving friends who had to wait for their flight that was that was tough and then the other thing was I I thought that we were going to be on one bird and we ended ended up on a different one. We ended up getting to, to mix in with a, a group of evacuees. And so that was actually really great because we got to kind of be there in their presence as they, as we, you, you could watch their emotions shift that, that weight that was on their shoulders as they, they stepped onto the plane, you know, and there was one specific guy who had his, I assume his wife next to him, his daughter on his lap and his son was sitting near and just, you know, just seeing the way he was kind of holding his daughter, it, it was, it was great to get a chance to, to be in that their presence and see the the multitude of emotions on his face as as he left behind probably you know everything he's ever known but he did it with his his family and now his family is is safe and has moved on you know so that it did not go the way that I thought it was going to go but it, it went in such an amazing way that and the whole the whole trip was worth it because of that how did this mission you know make you feel about about your work in the Air Force and about being an American and what we do abroad. I mean, I mean, just the the multitude, you know, of 120 plus thousand people who, you know, who look to America as their their safe place. That I mean, that I think says everything. I'll give you a little insight. So I had on my way into Kabul, I had stopped in at Al Udeid Air Base in Qatar. And while I was there, there was a box with some gallon-sized bag that had American flags in them, little little American flags. And I picked up a bag that had 50 American flags in it. And, and each each flag had like a little note that was like, you know, thank you for your service. And, you know, we're praying for you and we can't, can't wait until you get, came home. And so I took that with me, like as a plan to kind of like carry one every day to bring back to my family and say like, here, you know, I, I brought you this flag and, and close friends and stuff like that to say like, you know, this flag was a part of evacuating these people and they were pocket sized so I could easily carry them around while I was doing work on, I don't know, the third or fourth day, I saw some, some kids who were crying and I had like three flags on me or four flags. And there was four kids, it, you know, the, the number happened to work out where like the, the kind of little small group of kids, that was clearly one family who were, who were clearly having a pretty tough day, as you might imagine. So yeah. I just, I just took the flags out, took the little piece of paper that said like, you know, Hey, th- thank you for serving our country. And I just, I just took the flags themselves and handed them to these kids. And it just, just watching them change, that their faces change as they kind of that that little token kind of gave them that last bit of hope that they needed to, I think, to move on. So it kind of became a thing that I just did with the remainder of the flags, save for just a, a, a select few that I saved um, for my wife and kids. So every time I would go out and about, I'd make sure I'd, I'd try to make sure I had flags with me to to kind of hand out to the to kids, you know, just to kind of help give them something to, to look at or, you know, to, to aim towards. And then four or five nights, it's all kind of a blur, the timeline. But at some point we were flying what kind of became known as the orphan flights, which is, which is not exactly the the right way to call them because some of them are unaccompanied minors. They're separated or, you know, displaced from their families, but hopefully many of them were able to refine their families. But we know, you know, for a fact that some of them were orphans. So, you know, one particular night, we had one of the birds scheduled for these orphans, unaccompanied minors. And I, I had heard that there was going to be 22 of them. So I, I ran back to my room, grabbed 25 flags just in case they were off by a few. And then came back only to find out that there was like 30 something kids on the flight. And so I had already given the flags over to the the flight dock that was going to fly with them. So it just weighed on me so much. I ran back to the jock, called over to Al Udeed and said, hey, here's the, you know, the call sign, the tail number, you know, here's how many kids they had on board. 
can you guys go find those flags, you know, from where I originally picked them up and try to take the rest of them out. So I haven't been able to close the loop on that one, but hopefully they were able to get them out to the, to the plane so that every kid on that flight was able to get a flag. When, what did it feel like leaving, leaving Kabul for the, for what is hopefully the last time? There's, there's a, like a tiny part of me that hopes that it is not necessarily leaving Kabul for the very last time. There's a hopeful part of me that one day, many years from now, I'm sure that Kabul will be a place that we can, we can go to again, you know, whether or not it's for the last time. I hope it is from a military perspective or like from a, a combat perspective, but I hope it's not from a, from a, you know, diplomatic perspective. Is there, is there anything else you wanted to say or that, you know, any other questions you have for me at this point? <clears throat> I think that one of the th concerns during this evacuation operation, as I would see these people in absolute desperation to get to a, a safe, free place, you know, where their where their daughters can go to school freely, just, you know, and be equal was that they would get to the U.S. and and meet folks that didn't welcome them with open arms folks who maybe just didn't understand where they came from and the, the things that they experienced in their, their venture to get to a safe, free place. That's what I, I hope we can continue to communicate is how important it is as Americans to welcome these people and provide that safe place for them to go. And, and that's the freedom that they were they're striving to get to, you know, that they they risked many, many of these folks who you know made it has, are on their way now or have already made it into the U.S. They they took some very, very serious risks, them, both them as individuals you know, and their families were at constant risk. So while military members would rotate in and out for, you know, a year or six months or, you know, sometimes a little longer than a year at a time, these people would, would help us. And then the rest of their lives up until now, they were in a threat. They were, you know, their, them and their families were in danger because of the help that they provided us. So, you know, when it, when it comes to earning a spot in America, many of them have done so much for our country that, and for our service members that I, I would say, I would argue that they have, they have earned their place in the United States. Next up is Matt Steele, a C-17 pilot for the U.S. Air Force. He commissioned out of Air Force ROTC Detachment 157 in 2009 with his bachelor's degree in meteorology from Embry-Riddle. He also earned a master's in aeronautical science from Embry-Riddle in 2018. So I'm a instructor and evaluator pilot at Dover Air Force Base for the C-17. So primarily right now responsible for all the standards and evaluation pilots that we have. We have about 10 right now in the C-17 here at Dover. So we do all the check rides. Primarily, I'm an instructor first. So it's whether it's just local flight upgrades or just development of our pilots all the way from right out of graduating their initial qualification in the C-17 all the way through uh, advanced tactics instruction. I'm a C-17's weapons officer graduate. So I have a heavy background in tactics that we use for local training flights. And then part of our check rides also have a tactics portion. And I also have an air battle manager background prior to becoming a pilot. So talking with the command and control portion, I can teach a lot of that, which is unique to our community. We don't have a lot of people that tend to cross train. So bringing that experience has helped. And that was actually one of the reasons I actually went to weapons school was because it gave me the opportunity to teach that a little bit more formally and get some of it in our publications to propagate that throughout the community. I've been flying seven years in the C-17. As far as served uh, in Afghanistan, I've been deployed multiple times to the Middle East region. And then we conducted operations in and out of Afghanistan. So I think all of us were watching the news. We kind of knew what was going on. It, there wasn't uh, a shortage of volunteers for sure. I think everybody wanted to be a part of it. I just happened to be, based on the current schedule that we had, we didn't. they didn't have a ton of people available to sit in one of the alert statuses that we were currently needing people to sit. So I was thrown into an alert status that weekend on the 14th. I think I alerted the 15th in the morning to deploy and, and we didn't know really what we were going to do it was more of a hey you're probably going out to support this that's all we got you pretty much every day that you woke up you didn't know what to expect so you can expect anywhere from a 25 to 35 hour day 
you would land once you finally were done for the day, you had your minimum time crew rest, 12 hours crew rest, and then you were right back into another day. So it was pretty much like that for the two weeks. And that was all the crews. Now there were some crews that were flying or not flying. Uh, it was just kind of luck of the draw. You go out to a jet, it could break. So you may not fly, but for the most part, you'd expect that. Yeah. You were going to fly. You're going to have about a 30 hour day. And that's from like the time they call you till the time, hopefully you're back in your room was about 30 hours, but some, some crews experience worse, some better. Did you have a dedicated thing that you would transport? Like, were you always flying evacuees or always flying cargo or was it whatever needed to be moved at that particular time? Yeah, it was pretty much whatever the teams on the ground, like Adam was one of the guys on the ground. I actually know Adam Cooper. Yeah. Whatever the ground really gave us is what we went. So there wasn't any crews dedicated either for personnel or for equipment. When you got to the jet, you hopefully had a little bit, some indication of what you might be taking and that could help. Uh, kind of prepare you for what to expect, but we pretty much always expected to take passengers out. And if we got equipment, we got equipment, but it, it just really depended. We really had no idea how many people were going to have to get out. The reporting was, was wildly different. And, and I think we all saw that in the news as well. We weren't really sure how many people were going to have to get out. So we didn't know if this was going to be, we're going in once, twice, or if it was going to be a long time. So it was a lot of unknowns, especially early on when we were going in, I would say, just like any other mission, when, when you're flying down range, you have to be on your A game because there's people that don't want us there. So there's always, you know, a threat to the aircraft once you're flying in. And then on the ground, just the situation that we saw in the news developing, we were a little bit more aware of the sensitivity of needing to be, you know, efficient with how long we're on the ground in case that situation changed. But we also knew that our security teams that were on, on the airfield did a really good job of keeping it safe and for us. So I think the human side of it was when you were loading passengers and you saw like how thankful a lot of the refugees were. I mean, people were in tears, bawling their eyes out that they had finally gotten on an airplane. And, you know, somebody described it as a, a vessel of hope. That's really what it was. It was it was providing hope to those people that, you know, had had been scared for, you know, who knows how long they were at the airport or just lived in Afghanistan and always had to live in under you know their way of life. So it was, that was very emotional at the very beginning, having to kind of deal with that. And then you have to kind of push that aside and then continue on with what we're there to do while also keeping it safe. Cause we want to make sure our number one priority is keeping the crew safe or we can't help anybody. And then trying to keep our passengers safe and our ground teams as well. We talked about it as a crew when we were going in about what we were going to be doing and and yes, we're, you're saving the people that you get on the jet and every live matters. But one thing I wanted my crew, especially to understand is not only are you saving those people, but you're saving their children and their children's children. And we start thinking about the impact. Then it starts getting a lot bigger than just the immediate number that you see on the back of your jet. How do you keep calm in an operation like this? I think that comes back to just the training that we prepare for every day on all of our locals that, you know, we fly local flights, local training flights, you know, three to five hours. And we try and fly those once, twice, or once a week, every other week. And we have, you know, certain things that we have to prepare for and be proficient at in the aircraft. So when you're asked to go down and do something like this, it's not hopefully the first time you've seen at least the requirements that you're being asked to do, whether it's a type of arrival to the airfield, whether it's how you're going to get passengers onloaded on the aircraft, all those things we had done, the combination of the situation on the ground, the threat environment, and then how many people were being asked, all of that was, that situation as a whole was new, but each individual, you know, task we had done in some form of our training. So from the pilots all the way down to the load masters, they knew exactly what they needed to do. It's just a matter of how do we fit all of these pieces together to do it safely. I've heard about other operations like this, uh, more hurricane related, like in the Philippines and uh, the like with the C-17s doing these evacuations. Um, have you been involved in those in the past? So I had not. I had the fortunate privilege of actually being stationed in Hawaii for five years. I actually got to Hawaii shortly after the Philippines evacuation. And that actually was the first time, you know, in a long time where we really saw what the C-17 could do as far as a humanitarian aid, disaster relief, and then floor loading passengers to get them out. And we saw right there that kind of set a foundation. And then from there, we were able to kind of develop tactics that we could then employ if we ever had to go do it again. So 
after that, what came about operation, we, we developed tactics, techniques, and procedures or TTPs as we call them, where we were going to go out next year. If we had to do a non-combatant evacuation operation or a NEO that we could expect to lift between 300 to 350 people on the aircraft. So 300 on the floor and then another 50 on the ramp. That was our planning number that we were expecting going in. Now realize the C-17 can only hold 102 with seats. So in that case, we're taking out the centerline seats and we're just having people sit on the floor. So it's not something that you want to do anytime. It has to be extraordinary circumstances that drive you to that situation. When you're floor loading passengers like that, do you approach flying any differently? You do. You always want to be aware of your passengers. And then that's anytime. I mean, you ask an airline guy, they're always asking for ride reports that they don't get any turbulence, right? So that when we're sitting in the back, we're not uncomfortable. So of course, mm -hmm. we're, we're very aware. We're also aware though, that there's, we're in a threat environment. And the number one thing we have to do in order to keep everybody safe is, is protect the jet. So yes, we're aware and we're going to do everything we can to make it uh, as smooth a ride as possible, but we're also not going to sacrifice safety. So our load masters were able to provide cargo straps, kind of like a seatbelt that they would put on the floor so that the passengers had a restraint. So they weren't just, you know, free moving around in the cargo compartment. So they had some restraint if we did need to, you know, fly the jet in a position that wouldn't be as smooth as they probably would like. How many passengers were you taking on each flight? What we were planning for was three to 350. And then we ended up getting a waiver up to 450 because what they realized after the first couple of lifts was there was a lot of children. And so we could actually get more people on based on the fact that there were so many kids on the, on the aircraft. So what we saw is the ground personnel that were supporting the, like the contingency response element that was on the ground at Kabul, they started vetting passengers and then they would bring out exactly 450 every single time. So our first flight in, we only had about 250 because that's all that they had prepared for us. And then our next two missions in, we got exactly 450. They gave us a notional planning number of 200 pounds is, is what they were using. Are you getting anywhere near the payload capacity of the C-17 with loading that many passengers? So when you start, you know, looking at how much, you know, the average person weighs and then you start thinking about baggage. So even at 450 times 200 personnel, you're still looking at 90,000 pounds of cargo. Now that's well under our max capacity. Some of the limitations of the aircraft, you have to look at where you're actually loading them on the floor and there, there could be issues with that. But as far as total weight, the, the average that we were uh, expecting to take out of there was not really an issue for the aircraft. The real challenge was we had to take a lot of fuel. So that added to our overall weight that the aircraft can carry. And so now we're limited probably based on some environmental factors of how to depart the airfield and then how much, how many passengers we can carry. Um, then the, the weight starts to become significant. So it's not significant the fact that the aircraft can't necessarily handle it. The aircraft can handle it, but if we're taking you know a lot of fuel, now we start getting limited on on how much we can carry. Low masters do a great job of of making sure that they send us an accurate number of how many people we have, and then we take that weight, we put it into our mission computer, and it gives us all the airspeeds and everything we need to fly. So as long as the aircraft is accounting for the personnel correctly, we we don't really notice anything. We're flying airspeeds that account for that weight. What, what's scary is when you have more people on there than you're expecting. So that's what, you know, I really felt for those crews that went on the first couple trips because, you know, they were getting reports when they landed, there was probably more people than they were expecting. I mean, I think they did a, a, a great job of, you know, handling that situation, but that's what we wanted to avoid. So that's why we were very strict adherence to the 450 people so that we knew exactly how many it was, we used an average weight, and then the jets able to safely fly. Safety was the biggest concern. So as we started bringing people out of Afghanistan to some of the intermediate staging locations, they still wanted to make sure they vetted all the passengers again to make sure that they were safe, both for the passengers and then obviously where we were going to be sending them. And then some of the country agreements, I'm sure, had something to do with that. What do you think of the C-17 as an aircraft? Well, I think, you know, growing up flying this jet, I think myself and most of the air crews knew what it was capable of. I don't think it really... A lot of people widely knew what it was capable of as far as its ability to carry a lot of people, a lot of cargo, and it can get into very difficult airfields, whether it's a short runway, long runway. Uh, high altitude is, is a challenge for a lot of airplanes. Our, our jet is very unique in the fact that it can land almost anywhere. It can land on dirt 
it can, you know, it doesn't have to be a paved runway. And it's a very capable aircraft. And I think the cool thing was that I think the rest of the world got to see the capabilities that it had and, and what it was capable of when the situation is not ideal. I think the Jets overall, they did an amazing job. Because, I mean, in the Middle East, it's, it's not cool right now. It's very hot out there. So the Jets were under a lot of stress. It, they're in the desert. So there's a lot of sand getting in the engines. And the Jets just handled all of that. And then, again, to be able to take out that many people in that short of time is, I mean, it's, it's like nothing I've never seen. I, I never could have imagined it would be capable of that. And then the way the crews handled it as well. It was, uh, you know, we were talking about it after. I've never been more proud to be in the in the U.S. military just to see what the average, you know, American military member is willing to do for strangers. And then to see what this aircraft and the community of the C-17 as a whole were capable of. It was extraordinary. How did it feel for you after that successful attack on the airport? Yeah, our, our crew actually landed shortly after that. I would say knowing that they had a successful attack, there was definitely, it's hard to put into words. Like we knew the situation was, was real. The threat was real. I think it, it just hit a little bit closer to home knowing that just shortly before that we had lost American service members. So I think everybody was a little bit more focused and, you know, I think aware of their surroundings maybe more than they would have been at the beginning when everything was so new and, and overwhelming. I think that allowed at least my crew to, uh, really focus a little bit more and be much more aware of their surroundings, especially when they were on the ground. Now we've seen videos of, you know, some of those first flights out and people were hanging on the side of the aircraft. And I understand it went a lot more smoothly after those first couple of flights. Um, can you tell me how that situation changed for you over the duration of the operation? Yeah. I, by the time we got there, security forces had secured the airfield. They did a fantastic job. So Yes, I. What I saw on the news, I saw just like you did. It, it was we, we saw that on the news, and we were heading out to go in the next day, and so we were nervous, but we also had a lot of confidence that was just a a single event, and that we were going to have the airfield secured. And sure enough, they did, and it was nothing like what we saw on the news at all. They did an incredible job of securing the airfield and vetting the passengers that they brought to the aircraft. I was blown away with what the, the contingency response group there on the ground was able to do. It really was. Like, we'd land, we'd open the door, they'd bring us packs, we'd leave. Like, it was incredibly efficient. It was very well done. The big thing to take away here is that everybody was doing, I mean, their very best. I mean, they really were. What people are willing to do for complete strangers, you know, is is remarkable. And I'm very, very proud of all the people on the ground, especially the, the unsung heroes, I think, are sometimes not the people that get all the attention in the news, like just the the bus drivers at some of the intermediate staging locations that had to take the passengers once they got off our aircraft and drive them to different places or, you know, having to just take care of these people and, and house them. And people were just asked to do things that were not their job. And they didn't complain at all. They understood the magnitude of what was being asked. And you look at you know, history of airlift, you know, dating back to the invention of the airplane. This was obviously going to be looked at as probably one of the biggest airlifts and everybody just did a phenomenal job. Going into your last day on this operation, how did you think that was going to go? Because of the uncertainty, we actually didn't know when our last day was going to be. So like I said, you have a 30 hour day, you go into your 12 hours of crew rest, you start again, you get out to the jet and like, Hey, you're going here. Like, okay. So, you know, our last day, we didn't know it was our last day. They, we actually didn't go into Kabul that day. We, we moved some people to some other locations, and then we got to that location, and they're like, "Hey, you're going home." And then, so we just continued flying back home. So we actually didn't know when our last day was going to be, which I think was a good thing uh, because it kept us constantly focused, as opposed to you know maybe getting lax or or thinking there's an end and then being surprised that there wasn't. So. I think for my crew specifically, we actually operated probably a little bit better, not necessarily knowing when the our last trip was going to be. Did you have the same crew every time? You keep referring to your crew. Yeah. So for this op, the, the way they simplified things is you operated with the same crew. You know, we we ate together and then we just we all went flew, came back and we stayed in the same lodging accommodation. So it just made it much simpler. And then it gave you some continuity flying together for a couple of weeks. Do any of your passengers uh, stand out to you in your mind and your memory from this operation? 
Yeah, I mean, there was a lot. I mean, we were averaging 450 and they were pretty packed in in the back of the aircraft. So you didn't get a ton of time to really spend a lot of time with them. But I think the thing you're going to remember most is the kids. Like kids are still kids, which is really cool. There were some times where, you know, they're on the jet for a long time and, and they're scared, they're hungry, and, you know, they're spending a lot of time on the ground uh, or in the airplane. And the cool thing is that, you know, they're still running around playing with each other. They're still smiling. We gave, you know, one kid a, a C-17 little airplane sticker and he was so excited just to get that, you know, that sticker. We gave him a kid a patch and it was really cool. Just the, the human side of it, like where people are still people, you know, and it was, I mean, we saw the picture in the news of, you know, one of our airmen put their, their top on one of the kids. Like it was just, you know, you see, that was not my crew, but just seeing that really is, you know, it makes you emotional and, just again, really proud to be part of this whole event. And I think the big thing, you know, and I, I told this to my crew, and uh, we talked about it a little bit when we got back. It, it's kind of a play on a on a, another famous quote, but like the two most important days I told them in their Air Force career were the day that they volunteered to raise their hand, and then the day they find out why uh, they came in. And this event, I think, for me, is going to be the reason why you know. I volunteered to put a flag on my shoulder and, and, and do this. Cause again, the, the generations of people that were saved that, I mean, just seeing the emotion in their face makes everything worth it where they were American, Afghanis, other countries, there was Canadians, you know, different countries of people that were being evacuated. It was, that's, that's why, that's why we do it, you know, but you know, it's it, another thing that's really cool. There, there, you guys were right. There was a lot of Embry Riddle grads and alum on this and it's, it's cool going back and, and seeing like Adam Cooper and, and some of the other people that were, were involved and uh, man, what a, what a cool network it is being part of Ember Riddle. And uh, it's just, it's, it's really neat. And finally we have Adam Cooper. He'll give his air force credentials in a moment. Uh, he commissioned out of debt 157 in 2013 with a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering from Embry Riddle. After pilot training, my wife and I moved to California where I started flying the C-17 at Travis Air Force Base. I was there for about five and a half years and then went to McGuire Air Force Base where I'm in the contingency response wing now, although I still fly the C-17 with the 6th Airlift Squadron to maintain currency. So, And then as a part of the CRW at McGuire Air Force Base, we essentially train and deploy slash respond to worldwide crises and contingencies, just like we saw in Kabul, Afghanistan. Okay, so this this operation is sort of a regular part of your duties is responding to these sort of needs? It is, yeah. So, you know, typically you'll see us deployed in support of hurricane efforts, you know, around the Gulf Coast or Florida or the Caribbean. I mean, I wanted to be in the contingency response wing. And I, I applied for a program to get me there because it was very interesting to me. But as far as this deployment to Kabul, I got a phone call Thursday afternoon and I deployed the next day. Our primary mission set is, is actually training to what we executed in Kabul, which is operating the ground portion and the air portion of an airfield in support of mass operations. You know, you have a ton of cargo to move or a ton of people to move in a contested environment like we had you know, and working and leading our joint partners, the Marines and the Army, as the senior airfield authority and the operators of the airfield to execute the mission. So, okay, that's yeah, that's really interesting. That, uh, so, Doug Mayo said he volunteered for the operation. It sounds like you were assigned to it. That's correct. Yeah, I, as a pilot in the C seventeen, I've deployed twice before, once to Qatar and once to Kuwait. And as part of those deployments, we routinely fly almost on a daily basis in and out of Afghanistan, moving cargo and people. I had flown into Kabul before when flying the C-17 was my primary duty. So then this deployment, it was kind of weird being the guy on the ground the entire time supporting all these C-17s that I'm used to flying. 
Yeah, yeah. So tell me about what that experience is like. The the C-17 air crews were extremely dedicated to getting the job done. They knew that this was a no-fail operation. And being from the community, it kind of helped out with connections and knowing what C-17 operators are accustomed to, how they talk, what parking's going to be like, what they're worried about when we load a ton of passengers onto their plane. And it was kind of easy because I kind of talked the language, you know. Yeah. Well, so what, what are some of the things that they are, they talk about or are worried about when it comes to, you know, moving, you know, six, seven, 800 people, which is, I, from what I understand, much higher than the typical, you know, passenger carry for one of those. Yes, that is, that is quite a bit higher. So the, the standard loadout that, that I would try to ensure were loaded on the C-17s with approval from General Van Ovos, the commanding general of Air Mobility Command, was 450. And when you tell a C-17 air crew, we're going to put 450 people on your plane, you know, they're concerned about the safety and well-being of people. And that's what we tried to ensure was, was adhered to on the ground. So making sure that they had food, water, and they were taken care of prior to getting on the airplane. How does this compare to, you said, you know, you typically might respond to hurricanes and stuff. I, I read about, you know, work, I assume this, the CRE has done in like the Philippines with the hurricane evacuations and so on. How does that compare to this particular operation that, you know, you said you're specifically trained for? So the contingency response wing in the Air Force, we... We operate on a mentality of multi-capable airmen. It's basically ensuring that our members are prepared for anything. That's exactly what we're used for is, you know, doing the same foundation of operations, knowing your people, knowing how to communicate, having a good communication plan and contingencies, knowing who to reach out to when you need something else. That way, when we're put in these variety of operations that we are used for, we can still excel and meet the requirements of the mission. We'll do exercise where we will practice donning and doffing our chemical defense gear, you know, very quickly in the event that there may be a chemical attack. We will practice onloading and offloading non-standard cargo on aircraft while they keep their engines running at night while we're wearing night vision goggles. We will ensure that everyone is not only comfortable with firing and handling a weapon, but they're also good at it and safe with it. So that in the event we're used to operate an airfield in a contested environment like we saw in Afghanistan, we're prepared to do so. Yeah. You mentioned that this is a no-fail mission. What what does that mean? I can talk to like what it really meant for me and my team. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it meant that we're willing to sacrifice a little bit of our own comforts to ensure that we can meet the demands of the mission. So sleep, food on a regular schedule. We had food available to us. We had plenty of water available to us. But when you're go, go, going, it's like, man, I'm hungry. I've been hungry for four hours. Let me work these next few aircraft. And then I'm going to tag out and go eat while someone else takes the reins kind of thing. Or 16, 18, 20 hour days because the mission is so demanding. There are so many people counting on our success that I'm willing to have a few more coffees than usual to get the job done. Can you talk me through a typical day in your operations during the uh, Operation Allies Refuge? I would say the typical day is... Holy crap, there is so much going on constantly. Is <laughs> like is my one-liner like at a very tactical level, very very busy airfield and airspace. Uh typical day would be 
you have a hundred aircraft and our highest number of aircraft was, you know, higher than that, but on average around a hundred aircraft every day coming in, downloading cargo and or passengers. And these passengers in the beginning of the days, as was publicized, were of course the Marines and army coming in to provide security for the effort. And then quick turning these aircraft to be able to upload evacuees constantly. So you got multiple aircraft landing, coming into parking, downloading hundreds of people on the ramp, trying to organize them to upload into various aircraft and then get them out of the way because we have more aircraft coming in. Ops never stops. Do you have a, uh, did you have a particular turnaround you aimed for with these? Turnaround times would vary. You know, we, we typically see an average of less than an hour in expedited non-combatant evacuation operations like this the goal is to keep the aircraft on the ground for the least amount of time possible the only way that we would you know our, our small maintenance team is part of my team the only way that this maintenance team would actively go to an aircraft to assess any sort of perceived damage would be if the air crew brought it. Because we just simply don't have the time to do a standard walk around or, you know, post-flight inspection. And, you know, they're not even turning off their engines. How did the situation change from beginning to end? Did it feel safer in the beginning or at the end or at any particular point? I can only speak to my personal level of safety and I will say that in the beginning, there was a lot of chaos because you had a lot of different entities clashing together on this international airport. And that can be perceived as an unsafe situation However, I go back to relying on my team in the moment to operate safely, defend if necessary safely, and really just help out these evacuees who are scared and motivated to leave this country. Yeah. Um, in in your role, were you able to see a number of the evacuees? Did you get a sense of, you know, the, the types of people they were? Did you have a connection with any of them? A, a sense of the importance of what you're doing for them? I think the only... So I'll say, I will say I saw over 90% of the evacuees just because of the nature of of what the contingency response swings role is, right? You know, we're right there mm-hmm. in the thick of it running the ops. But one situation I think that I talked about for the first time earlier today before I met with you was we're loading an aircraft and an Afghan National Army gentleman is coming on the aircraft, you know, as an evacuee with his wife, his four kids, his parents, gets them all seated. I'm standing there because I knew the air crew, you know, talking with my C-17 buddies. And the A&A gentleman comes over to me, gives me a hug and says, thank you. And then goes back to join his family. Yeah. How how did that feel for you in that moment? I don't think it hit me really in the moment just because, you know, we're so busy and I had to like really focus on the mission at hand. But I think afterward, thinking back to putting myself in his shoes of what it was like to flee your country that you wear the uniform of. This might sound corny, but for the United States to be the ones to to help out and provide that assistance and ensure that he and his family got got out of there, that 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 hits. When there was that you know that that attack on the airport, did emotions change? I felt different. Mm-hmm. I felt different because you know we my team and I were relying on the army and Marines to provide security in doing that. Some of them lost their lives and that hits different. That hits really different. 
right? You know, I, I'm now at home. I'm actually in my apartment in Philadelphia right now speaking to you with my wife and my two dogs next to me. And there are members who are unable to do that. And that hit me immediately as soon as, as we had heard that some members were killed in action. When you began your last day there, how did you think it was going to go? The last day, I thought it was going to be more chaotic than it was. We, we had planned exactly who in my team was going to go on which plane, what time it was going to happen, what time we were going to grab our bags, what time we were going to start shutting down our operations. And we executed according to the plan that we built. And honestly, it went way smoother than I expected. My team and I, we left in the middle of the night, bags on our back, got on the C-17, closed the ramp, unloaded our weapons, and off we went. I've read that it's sort of the largest non-combatant evacuation in U.S. military history. Yes. How, How did that make you feel about your you know, did it make you feel good about your work in the Air Force or about being an American? Is that is this what you signed up for? I'll give you a an unfiltered answer here. This is not what I signed up for. It's not. When I was at Embry-Riddle, I wanted to fly. That is all I wanted to do. A childhood dream was to become a pilot. After pilot training and after a few years of flying the C-17, my eyes were open to a much broader scope of operations that we would support. I think my pride and my desire to serve shifted from a, I I would admit, a a self-centered maybe objective of I just want to fly airplanes to a more uh, strategic importance of what it means to serve the country and the nation and essentially the world, right? And I think that's why I'm interested in humanitarian operations like this. Was there, can you give me an example of a particular, so you said there was, you know, constant chaos and lots of like problem solving. Can you give me an example of a certain, you know, a difficult problem that you had to solve during that, during that operation and how you figured it out? So airspace control is important. Okay. And a part of what my team is able to do is we have air traffic controllers. They can control something as small as class Delta, but with augmentation, they can control RAPCON or even higher, such as like a center. You know, there was a point where the airspace control of Afghanistan, all of Afghan airspace, lost a little bit of connection and they were unable to positively control these hundreds of aircraft in and out of the country. And it was my team, give a shout out to them, my comm team specifically, who worked with different agencies on base, as well as these airspace controllers uh, that weren't even in the same country to go get a satellite that was at HKIA back on the net to provide air traffic control. And, you know, that was done in conjunction with the communication folks who know how the satellites work and interface with, you know, radar control and such. I I unfortunately can't speak to those specifics, but they got it done and they got it done quick. And in order to do so, you know, it was at night, of course, right? You know, we had to like drive to another side of the airfield to a different ramp that had different entities there operating with a lot of stringent security. You know, that was the commercial side of the airport also, which the Taliban had already seized control over. Uh, And they went over there to fix this. Uh, It was a stressful time. Yeah, I bet. I bet. So uh, you said something as small as class Delta. What is what is class? Class Delta is is usually like four nautical miles and 2,500 feet. So four nautical miles laterally around an airfield and 2,500 feet of airspace above. All of my Embry-Riddle nerds will definitely know the class Delta. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a little bit, I'm an aircraft nerd to a degree, but I don't like, I I don't know the full, the full (laughs) nerdy gritty, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And so you said as high as RATCON and Center. Can you uh, clarify that for me? Yeah. So RATCON, that's usually like your your radar and approach control. So they're kind of like the next level of airspace control beyond your, your tower controllers. So that class Delta is usually your tower. And then beyond that is your radar controllers, which is your RAPCON. And then beyond that, you usually have your center controller, so cobble center, which is a very, very large amount of airspace. Okay. Okay. So we have you know, multiple aircraft control centers for like metro areas around the U.S., right? Exactly. Like the, yeah. Okay. I, okay. I think Daytona Beach falls under Jacksonville Center, you know, so, you know, you go, if you take off at a KDAB, You'll talk mm-hmm. to Daytona Tower. They'll switch you to Departure. They'll switch you to Jack Center. Gotcha. Gotcha. What What was it like leaving leaving Kabul for the last time? What did I hope is the last time? It was the most silent I've ever heard a C-17 cargo compartment full of stone cold operators with weapons trapped to their chest <laughs> loaded down in, in all of our battle rattle, you know, is our, our vest, our helmets and such. Yeah. Dead silent. And just wondering one, are we going to break <laughs> or is the, is the C-17 going to get us out of here? And two, hoping that there wouldn't be any, you know, further attacks on our way out. And then three, I think that's the first time that at least for some of us, I can't speak for my whole team, we're really thinking about what this meant. And I think it felt good. Oh, it felt good for me. You said you were leaving at night. And if you're at, were you guys the last ones out among the last ones out? We were not part of the the last force out, you know, the picture with the 82nd Airborne Division Commander, Major General Donahue and and his team. We were not part of, of those chalks. We were the ones that left right before his team because his team were the ones providing the security. And I'm glad that we left before before those guys and gals. Is there anything that you knew coming into this interview what you wanted to say or share? That we haven't already covered. I have a an Embry Riddle tiny little patch that I wear on my uniform all the time that I'm very proud of. So I, I'm glad you reached out. I'm a proud Eagle and at 157 alum. This concludes this special episode of Talent Talks. Uh, you can find the related story, which is called Providing Refuge, on page 35 of the fall-winter 2021 issue of Lyft Magazine and at lyft.erau.edu. This episode was recorded and edited by me, Alan Caesar. I'm Assistant Director of Digital Engagement and Philanthropy here at Embry-Riddle. Talent Talks was created by me and the students at WIKD Radio at Embry-Riddle's Daytona Beach campus. Tony Brown is Executive Director of Communications for Philanthropy and Alumni Engagement and the editor of Lyft Magazine. Edmundo Darte is Executive Director of Alumni Engagement. Thanks for downloading us. We'll be back with one of our regular episodes next month.